Hello and welcome to the second series of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from the region. In this episode, we meet domestic workers in Timor-Leste who are marching to raise awareness of their labour conditions. We hear from political groups in Thailand working to decentralise politics beyond the Bangkok-centric focus. We speak to researchers who are highlighting Facebook's struggles with the Khmer language in Cambodia. And a human rights worker discusses the way the word Rohingya has become weaponized in Myanmar. Performing the vital but often undervalued work of caring, cleaning and cooking, Timor-Leste's domestic workers play a significant role in supporting families and communities. But with minimal legal protections for their labour rights, domestic workers are vulnerable to exploitation and discrimination. They typically earn less than the minimum wage, with no guaranteed access to annual leave, sick leave or regulated working hours. Legislation to formalise and regulate domestic work was drafted more than a year ago, but is yet to be passed. On this year's International Domestic Workers' Day, workers marched through the streets of Dili to ask that they not be forgotten. Laura McDowell and Theodosia Dos Reyes joined them on their procession for better working conditions. We are slowing down traffic on Kamora Road, one of the busiest streets in Timor-Leste's capital of Dili. About a hundred people, mostly women, are marching together holding banners and signs up to the passing cars and motorbikes. A big truck leads the crowd with a keyboard and microphone set up on the back tray. It's International Domestic Workers Day. For many marching today, this is their only day off for the week and they're spending it to campaign for their legal rights and protection as domestic workers. Timor-Leste's Labour Code, which came into effect in 2012, states that a separate specific law should be created to regulate domestic work. During 2017 and early 2018, through consultation and review, this specific law was drafted, outlining basic rights such as minimum wage, paid overtime and sick leave. However, more than a year later, domestic workers such as Madalena Lida Sunsound Diaz are still waiting for it to be approved. Our friends and I on International Labor Day, and also on this day, we asked to the government to realize this law for domestic workers, for both women and men, because our work is really hard to do. We are knocking on the government's door, but the government is not listening to us. We want our rights to be realized. The specific law seeks to bridge the gap that many domestic workers find themselves in, somewhere between formal and informal working arrangements. Many domestic workers, often young women, have family connections to their employers, no contract and not a lot of bargaining power. Madalena says she makes about $100 US per month, 
$15 below Timor-Leste's minimum wage. I'm not just working in one role, but doing everything. Cooking, washing clothes, caring baby, and caring for grandparents. But always the same salary. I asked to the government to add to this salary. We also don't get holidays. We only stay with the employers as part of their family. Only on Christmas holiday, we have a license to stay with our own families. But after that, we continue work. Madalena's situation isn't uncommon. A small-scale study conducted by the Working Women's Centre Timor-Leste in 2017 surveyed 178 domestic workers across Dili and the regional areas of Akusi and Swai. The door-to-door survey found the majority of domestic workers were paid less than the minimum wage, on average 109 US per month. A quarter had no guaranteed access to leave and more than four in ten did not have a regular day off. According to the Working Women's Centre manager, Rika Pasquella, lack of legal protection also leaves domestic workers vulnerable to non-economic forms of exploitation. Because there is no law, they are very vulnerable for violation, discrimination and exploitation. Sometimes it is also easy for some women to become victims of human trafficking. After the march, we got in contact with SAFOPE, the Secretariat of State for Professional Training and Employment, to find out why the specific law for domestic workers has not yet been brought into effect. The short answer, according to SAFOPE's National Director for Worker Relations, Angelo Dos Santos Veloso, is that Timor-Leste's multiple elections and difficulties forming government in recent years has stalled the legislative process. The specific law for domestic workers was presented to Parliament during a previous government, but did not pass before the following election and now has been handed back to technicians at Safope for further review. This law is very important, but it is still in our hands. During the sixth government, we succeeded to submit this law, but their mandate finished and the council minister gave the laws that were not yet passed back to the institution responsible, so the law is back in our hands. He says Sifope is now prioritising presenting other legislation to Parliament, such as Labour Code revisions and the mediation law. If these are successful, then they'll turn their attention to the specific law for domestic workers. In the meantime, Angelo says domestic workers do actually have rights and avenues to lodge a complaint under Timor-Leste's overall Labour Code. The Labour Code is the overriding law. The specific law will just complement the overall law. If there is a violation in the workplace, we have an inspection team that can go to the workplace and we will enforce it. However, according to the Working Women's Centre, domestic workers are not really in a position to bring cases forward to Sofope without the legal clarity afforded by a specific law and given the vulnerable situations many domestic workers find themselves in, they face major difficulties in asserting their labour rights. Another reason that implementation of the specific law may have stalled is fear of pushback from employers who are often under financial pressure themselves. Santina Suarez, a consultant for UN Women, 
explains that Timorese formal sector workers are increasingly relying on outsourcing domestic labour to allow them to juggle the demands of work and family life. For instance, like even they hire somebody to work with them, but they also earn not that much. Like for those who work with the public service, uh, you know, as public servants, they maybe only earn uh, less than 300, so they cannot pay maybe more. Because we are all working in survival economy, yeah? Like we are in subsistence, what so-called economy. There are currently no figures on just how many people are employed as domestic workers in Timor-Leste. As such, the Working Women's Centre has asked that this question be added to the next national census. However, with increased women's participation in the formal workforce, a key part of the government's national employment strategy, and without a formal childcare sector, it is likely that there'll be an increased demand for domestic workers in the future. Rika from the Working Women's Centre argues that Timor-Leste's reputation as a fair and democratic nation is at stake if it can't afford basic rights to the domestic workers underpinning much of the nation's planned formal sector growth and development. We are leaving them behind. We need to push them in front. It's important that their treatment is that of human dignity. We need to see domestic workers as part of the development of our nation. If the government wants to grow the economy through creating decent work, domestic workers must be included here. For now, domestic workers such as Madalena are still wondering if and when their work will be recognised. Even though this is hard work, we do it with patience. I understand this is my work. Sometimes we want to work in a company, but we don't have a qualification. That's why our work is caring for grandparents and doing domestic work. Last year, we asked to the government to consider our salary. But until now, I don't know why it has not happened. That report was brought to you by Laura McDowell and Theodosia Dos Reyes in Dili. In Thailand, places outside of the capital, Bangkok, often feel underrepresented in the country's politics and policies. Residents from the northern city of Chiang Mai want to take some of the decision-making power away from the central government. An increasing number of activists and politicians are now working to decentralize power to provinces other than Bangkok. Adam Bema reports on the growing demands to move politics outside of the capital. We want local communities to have more say in how resources in their communities should be managed. This is Tanaton Zhuang Rungwangkit, founder of Thailand's Future Forward Party, speaking at the Foreign Correspondence Club of Thailand. Oh, yeah. Chamnan Chamruang is one of the party's deputy leaders and a newly elected member of parliament from Chiang Mai. Education revolutions. Chamnan joined the party in 2018 after spending the last decade fighting to give more autonomy to Thailand's 76 provinces. Uh, we call Big Bang, Big Bang decentralization, just like Indonesia, they did it uh, in 1999. Yeah. Suharto rules Indonesia more than uh, 32 years, but now Indonesia is in the front row of democracy because the, the local government there is a very progress. Both Indonesia and Thailand held national elections this year. Future Forward Party placed third in Thailand's overall vote count. It received 81 seats in parliament. If we sell these policies about better cities, 
better hometown. You don't have to come to Bangkok to find good jobs. We create good jobs in your town. Future Forward Party's popularity with young voters has brought it under scrutiny. Tanaton stands accused of having violated the computer crimes, sedition, and electoral laws. Before the 2014 military coup, Chamnan proposed a decentralization bill into parliament, but it died on the floor of the house. He's now hoping to revive it. Almost every time we have uh, the election, almost every party raised the, this issue. But when they became the member of parliament or became the government, they ignored. For the constitution now, we can propose the bill. If you collect the, the members of 20 or more, are proposed by the cabinet. So that's why I have to work in the parliament. According to Chamnan, many Chiang Mai residents are in favor of decentralization. Calls for more local autonomy have come from residents in Phuket in the south and Khon Ken in the northeast. Chiang Mai is one of the, of the famous tourist attraction, attraction province. Nara Chayajit is an LGBT activist from Chiang Rai. She believes the devolution of power from Bangkok will allow grassroots democracy to flourish in Thailand. After the coup, I remember that it's, it's the time for, the, for each province to, to have their own uh, local uh, election. And then the coup, uh, you know, the NPCOR order to postpone until now. After the uh, election committee are certifying uh, this election and has the the government, right? So the next step is the local uh, election. So decentralization is the key to sustain our local development, our domestic development, and also to sustain our long-term democracy development also. Nada fears the newly elected government will not discuss decentralization out of complete ignorance or even fear of the military. Thailand's former military rulers and current Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha views any attempt at local autonomy as a threat to national security. There's a fear among Thai authorities that separatists from Patani in the deep south of Thailand could use autonomy as a pathway for independence. When it comes to uh, decentralization, most, most people didn't understand well about what that does mean. Uh, it's not about um, our federal government, they sacrifice some of their power to the local community. It is about being, um, being able to look after ourselves. For me, decentralization is about uh, how we can project and design our own life uh, as a local community there. Tanta Lauvila Wayankun is a Chiang Mai resident. Since a government order four years ago against political assembly, Tanta has been silent on the issue of decentralization. But following the election last March, she feels it's safe to restart her work. The, the problem is because um, sometimes, for example, we want to fix a problem in Chiang Mai. Um, in order to do that, you're going to have to kind of like make a complaint to the province. And the province will send that to the region, which is like a northern, eastern, um, central, and north, uh, southern region. So like for Chiang Mai, it's the northern region. And then the region will send um, that to the central government. And the central government will be like, okay, we want to fix this. They send it back to the region, to the province, and to the city. Residents of the capital, Bangkok, have been allowed to vote for their own governor since 1975. 
the resort city of Pattaya even has its own elected mayor. A 2010 Thai military crackdown on the red shirt movement in Bangkok made many protesters retreat to Chiang Mai. They began calling for a parallel government to be set up. This failed and gave the military more reason to continue its staunch opposition to decentralization. Tanta believes decentralization could play a critical role in teaching Thai's democratic values beyond voting in national elections. What we exactly need right now is democracy because it is our right you know, to express our opinions and, and, and problems and political views and what we need, whether it's right or wrong or not. Nada thinks Chiang Mai is the best place to start. She says the city could use the majority of its tax revenue, now sent to Bangkok, to improve quality of life locally. When it's come to decentralization, do not just give the power you can enact the law. So no more coup d'etat for me in the long term because we manage our own life, we have our own voice. People feel like they can monitor the money they, they, they earn, they can monitor their own local government. As Thais start to discuss ways to end military intervention in national politics, many believe citizen engagement born out of decentralization the devolution of power from Bangkok to the provinces and cities would be a good starting point. And just imagine how powerful it is, how we could change, really, really change things. If we do this in these local elections, imagine how big the awareness of how democracy works going to be. That report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Chiang Mai. In Cambodia, it has never been more important for people to understand exactly what information they are sharing online and with whom. But new research around digital privacy in the country suggests that Facebook's own settings and the way they have been translated into the Khmer language may be putting the personal data of some of the most vulnerable Cambodians at risk. That's the topic of a new paper set to be published in November in the journal Computer Supported Collaborative Work. Quinn Libson spoke with two of the paper's authors to learn more. In Cambodia's digital world, Facebook is king. When people buy new phones, Facebook is one of a handful of apps that come pre-installed. For the country's tech sector, Facebook is synonymous with the internet. And for many less tech-savvy Cambodians, it's the only way they get online. A lot of times I've asked people to use the internet, and they've said no, but... I also do use Facebook, and they say yes. That's Maggie Jack. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Information Science at Cornell University. The bulk of Maggie's research for the last five and a half years has been around the ways people use technology in Cambodia. For her latest project, she's turned her focus on the problems with Facebook's user experience. Maggie and her co-author, a Cambodian researcher named Peng Savanarot, call me Narot, were interested in one area in particular. A pitfall Facebook hasn't managed to overcome that has to do with a critical difference between English and Khmer. It's leaving Cambodians vulnerable when it comes to their online privacy. The issue? There's no direct translation for the word privacy into Khmer language. No single word or phrase that fully and completely means privacy in the way English speakers understand it, in the way Facebook's privacy settings are meant to be understood. The problem isn't so much what Khmer can or can't do as a language. The real issue is that Facebook appears to have done nothing to try to work around that nuance. It's really crazy. It's super irresponsible, I think. 
The word that Facebook has chosen to represent privacy in its Khmer language settings. Settings that allow you to regulate who sees your personal information, your photos, and the posts you share. Is Aikajun Piep. Well, Maggie and Narot ask Cambodians about that word. Aikajun Piep. How do they know what the Aikajun meaning? Yeah, people just didn't know what the word meant. Aikajun is sort of like the opposite of public. And the addition of Piep makes the adjective into a noun, but putting those two things together without context just doesn't really make any sense to Cambodians. Actually, no one understands about that. <laughs> Maggie and Narot went out and spoke to people to get a sense for how Facebook's translation issues and other aspects of the platform's user experience might be affecting the online lives of Cambodians. What did they find? First, Facebook's Khmer translations are so clumsy, almost all of the people Maggie and Narot spoke to use Facebook exclusively in English. Even many of the Cambodians who couldn't speak or read any English at all chose not to use the app in Khmer. Even Narat, a tech researcher, is confused by the translation in Facebook's Khmer language settings. When you use Facebook, do you use it in Khmer or in English? For me, only English. I cannot understand in Khmer. <laughs> and privacy isn't the only term Facebook has struggled to adequately translate. I asked Narat to switch her Facebook account into Khmer and take a look at the other keywords in Khmer language. Is it, is it okay if I turn to make it into Khmer? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> I assume you know how to get it back out. Yeah. First of all, it took the two of us working together about 10 minutes before we even found the correct way to switch Facebook's language settings from English to Khmer on Narat's phone. Hmm, did that work? Where did you find that before? Still English. <laughs> yeah. And when we did, there were a lot of clues that Facebook's translation hasn't been designed for the average Cambodian user. Uh, this one, Bangkat Lake Code, it means uh, to create a password. Does that make sense if you don't know what that means? They don't know. What is it, Lake Code? <laughs> Even in Khmer already, but Lake Code, what Lake Code for Facebook, they don't know. For Maggie, this is all a pretty good sign that Facebook's basic model for how the platform should work for its users is badly broken in Cambodia. The whole model for how Facebook is supposed to work is that you're able to log into an account by yourself, read the settings so that you can set up the account in a way that works for you, including like for the privacy tools and other safety tools. But that's just not the case in Cambodia at all at this point. If you only speak my language, and you go in and you try to set up an account, there's no way you could understand the settings in Khmer language, particularly for privacy settings. There are three parts of the privacy settings that Maggie sees as instrumental. Were they setting their posts to friends only or public? Were they setting passwords? And kind of a more advanced one was, do you set alerts on your phone so that if somebody gets into your account, you would somehow get an, a message about that? And the results aren't encouraging. Nobody who only speaks Khmer language even knew that these settings exist. And it was essentially impossible to set those things if you only speak Khmer. They don't know only public, public. All of them, public. So who's at risk? People are more vulnerable when they're in other ways marginalized. The people who are older had less education. Disproportionately rural users were all more likely to feel like they had information vulnerabilities. So what's at stake for these people? I mean, there's a lot. I mean, people's reputation is at stake, personal safety, finance. And the risks are only bound to grow. 
There's a huge initiative right now on Facebook's part to have mobile money go into Facebook. There are people working on microfinance in Cambodia who are advertising through Facebook. If that goes on Facebook and then privacy issues are there, um, I think that there's a huge risk there. And then there's the elephant in the room. The way the Cambodian government has used Facebook as a tool to crack down on political dissent. At this point, it's a very politically sensitive moment. So people worry about political risks of having too much information shared. There's a lot of precedent to show that people should be worried. More than a dozen Cambodians have been arrested or legally threatened because of content they've posted on the platform since 2015. In March of this year, a 32-year-old man from Svairiang province was arrested for posting something on Facebook that was determined to be insulting to the king. He was charged with public defamation, lese majeste, as insulting the king is legally called, insulting the public and incitement to commit crime. The lese majeste charge is punishable with up to five years in prison. Just one month earlier, a 45-year-old was arrested and charged with incitement for insulting the prime minister on Facebook. The list could go on. These have become familiar stories. It's important to note that for the most part, these people who are being arrested for their Facebook posts are not tech-savvy, city-dwelling political activists. They're ordinary people, many of whom are from Cambodia's less developed provinces. For Maggie, this is all part of a much larger issue, that Facebook has been designed with, as she puts it, a view from nowhere. And the result is a tool that effectively ignores the local context whether it's the linguistic context, cultural context, or dangerously, the political context in which it's being used. The idea that there is such a thing as a universal user needs to change because clearly that's not the case. And building tools like that leads to unsafe tools. To get away from designing tools for a mythical universal user and move toward building tools that suit local contexts, Maggie and Narat argue that Facebook needs to invest time, money, personnel. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that Facebook needs to develop a local team in Cambodia. That's like definitely first priority. Like they need to have somebody who's living in Phnom Penh or at least speaks Khmer to develop the UI in Khmer language in a way that makes sense to people. It's shocking to me that that doesn't already exist. And these user experience problems they aren't just limited to Cambodia. That is true everywhere in any context in which there's a minority language or culturally specific understandings of privacy. In the parts of the world Facebook has been designed for, growth is slowing down. I think in the U.S. we think of Facebook as somewhat passe, but actually in 2018, Facebook growth rates continued about 10% worldwide, but almost all of that growth is happening outside of what we usually call the global north. But also, these are the places where Facebook and other Silicon Valley companies have put the least amount of attention. So there's a huge gap in terms of the need versus fulfilling the need. And those other Silicon Valley companies aren't exactly off the hook. Right now, this is about Facebook because Facebook is the most popular platform in Cambodia. But it very well could be that in the next couple of years it changes and that it's not Facebook anymore. It could be another Western platform or it could be a Chinese platform. But we expect that other transnational tech platforms are going to be facing the same language and cultural requirements. And while Maggie's research largely focuses on peer-to-peer -peer privacy concerns, what she's finding makes her think the next big debates around data usage and online privacy will happen on a larger scale and outside the global north, in places exactly like Cambodia. 
everybody we talked to, apart from four like technology experts in Phnom Penh, didn't know how their data was being used by Facebook. And this is a huge issue. At this point, Facebook is making a lot of money on the Cambodian market because they are taking people's data and selling them advertising. And all that money is getting funneled out to you know, Silicon Valley. The rest of the world, Maggie argues, is on track for a large-scale reckoning in the way the European Union's general data protection regulation and the Cambridge Analytica scandal have shifted the way Europe and the United States think about personal data. Just because this reckoning hasn't happened in the global south yet doesn't mean it isn't on its way. That was Quinn Lisbon, who was speaking with Maggie Jack and Pang Sovana Roth in Phnom Penh. In Myanmar, state-led violence against the minority ethnic Rohingya group has become increased in recent years, with anti-Rohingya sentiment finding a whole new audience through online social media platforms, racial stigmatization and hate speech against the group has been on the rise. But this polarization of the Rohingya is far from a new development and has been present across the political spectrum in Myanmar for decades. James Rose, a former media advisor to the Burmese government in exile during the days of the military junta, discusses how the word Rohingya has been increasingly weaponized over the years. Words are important. Identity still counts for a great deal in human society. And what we call ourselves, and allow others to call us, is central to our understanding of who we are, both in global terms and personally. For the Rohingya, Identity has proven to be a deadly, even genocidal, battleground. For the Rohingya Muslims living in Rakhine State, or Arakan as the Rohingya would prefer it to be known, and those living outside in the vast Rohingya diaspora, the very term Rohingya is bloated with political meaning. The Rohingya word is problematic too for those non-Rohingya living in Rakhine State, and the tensions inherent in the usage of the term are causing ruptions within the local community above and beyond the actions of the military-led government. Also, the term is intensely weighted for Myanmarese outside of Rakhine. From the highest levels of government to the lowliest of street hawkers, the word Rohingya has many facets. For many of us, of course, who are not directly affected by the ongoing Rohingya crisis, we think of the tragedy of their plight and the savagery of the situation. For many around the world, Rohingya is a byword for suffering. I personally learnt of the problematic nature of the Rohingya word in 2007. Then I was working as a global media advisor for the National Coalition Government for the Union of Burma, which was effectively a government in exile made up of National League for Democracy members elected in 1990 and disallowed from taking office by the military regime. I was working on a major article for them to go on the now defunct Far Eastern Economic Review. I wanted to mention the Rohingya and to try and draw them into the broad democracy landscape I thought the NCGUB supported. But I was told by the NCGUB hierarchy to remove all reference to the Rohingya from the draft I had sent them and in any future media output. No reason was given, nor did I get a sense it was an invitation for a discussion. I tried to dig a little bit deeper, but 
I failed to get much of a response, and so the word Rohingya dropped out from the lexicon. While I had to do it, as the communications I was preparing were not in my name, I'm really sorry I did, and I'm a little ashamed I didn't fight harder, especially in light of what has happened since. It's a tragedy that the paranoia around the Rohingya term was not curtailed then, or when other opportunities presented, as so much of what has happened in the last years in particular have been driven by the emotions around the word Rohingya. The advent of social media and the arrival in Myanmar of Facebook in particular has been a driver of this crisis in language. The propensity for platforms like Facebook to allow and even encourage hate speech and fake information has deeply underpinned the existing Rohingya crisis. And that word Rohingya, it's actually become less of a descriptor and more of a weapon. Surprisingly and disappointingly, that aversion to even using the word Rohingya has continued. Ansung Su Chi, who in 2007 was the figurative head of the NCGUB, albeit under house arrest at the time, and now a state councillor of Myanmar, has steadfastly refused to depoliticise the word Rohingya. She's borne the opprobrium of the global community for her hardness on the issue, and she's wasted a vast store of political capital that she's built up over decades of extraordinary activism and leadership. Taking a stance on openly using that word Rohingya might in fact have been one of her first acts as the nation's titular head. She could have used her stratospheric media profile within the country and outside it to ensure the word was stripped of its political baggage, and not doing so was, I think, a huge miscalculation. It's allowed a dangerous parochialism to become more firmly established across the country, and it's deepened fault lines of ethnicity running through the heart of Myanmar. Paranoia around Rohingya has laid a poor base for Myanmar's democratic future, if in fact it is to have one at all. As the issue is to some extent linguistic, the opportunity is there to approach it on the same terms. While there are ongoing disputes about who was in the Rakhine slash Arakan region first, the value of such a distinction needs to be decreased, and the overall stake of all ethnicities in the future of Myanmar emphasised. The who was first argument only has validity for as long as such a distinction is referenced across the nation. Dorsu's government could have gone a long way towards undermining it. It still can. Myanmar's many ethnic divisions have been manufactured by vested interests over decades, often using the power of language and the techniques of PR. Ethnic divisions can only exist for as long as the language of difference has a currency. Political leaders can shape how words themselves are politicised and used, and how issues are framed. Changing how those groups such as Rohingya are communicated is central to the goal of greater unity and unity is as much a communication task as an action one. And the government's role here, and the leadership of Unsung Su Chi, is surely to break down the barriers around the word Rohingya. In my view, Myanmar will struggle with democracy, for all, until its leaders undertake such a process. comment piece was brought to you by James Rose. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Laura McDowell, Theodosia Dos Reyes, Adam Bemmer, Quinn Lisman, and James Rose for making this episode possible. 
Unarrative's Political Agenda, our separate podcast series focusing on current affairs in Singapore, will return soon. Do check out our website, newnarrative.com, for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com. Learn more about New Narrative at newnarrative.com. Hello. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa. Thank you.